That's perfect. All right, you look great. <laughs> Are you ready? I would have done my hair if I had known I was going to be on TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look good. All right. Yeah, go for it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle, and this is the Acquirers Podcast. My guest today is Jake Taylor. He's written a fantastic new book, and he's got a call from Charlie Munger. We're going to talk to him in just a few moments. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Jake has written the hottest book on global Wall Street right now. It's called The Rebel Allocator. Uh, it's about a fictionalized Jake Taylor meeting a fictionalized Warren Buffett. And uh, Charlie Munger loved it so much that he called Jake up to talk about it. And uh, Jake, establishing dominance, something like that, refused to take the call <laughs> or screen the call. So tell us what, what happened. Charlie Munger called up. You didn't want to take his call. You called him back. Well, you know, I only took this call because it was the same 310 area code, and I thought it was <laughs> might have been Charlie, so <laughs> no, I'm fair. just teasing. Um, no, no, I just uh, – I, I don't answer the phone at the office, and uh, my assistant answered it, and, and she happened to be working from home that day, and she called me and said, you're never going to believe it, but Charlie Munger called, and he wants you to call him back. And I was like, all right, don't mess with me, all right? This, I'm not in the mood for that kind of thing. Uh, no, here's his number. So then I – I'm like, okay. And I kind of sat there for a second, like, what am I going to say? I don't even know. What do you, what do you talk, what do you tell God when you, when he calls? Right. And, uh, so I dialed the number and, uh, a woman answers and I, I believe it's his like daughter or daughter-in-law or something like that. And, uh, she's like Munger residence. And I'm like, uh, is Charlie there? He, I, he called and wanted me to call him back. Like I'm dumbfounded. I don't even know what to say. And, uh, she says, oh, hold on a second. And then like two seconds later, Charlie's on and he's, just talking about my book with me, uh, and I'm, I'm just sitting there wondering, is this real life or not? So he's got, he's, I, I've heard him say at different um, DJ co meetings and other things like that that he gets people send him so many books, and so do you know why he kind of, like, do you know why he plucked that out of the pile? Why he read it? Like he's read it cover to cover and loved it. I mean, that is what he said. He said I, you know, I started reading it, and before I knew it, I'd read the whole damn thing, and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I was like, wow, that's that's amazing. And I don't know why this particular book uh, grabbed him. I mean, it must have been I sent it. It was around the holidays. So maybe I like caught him at a soft, weak moment or something. Um, and he wanted to read something that was uh, a little bit different. But I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you. I don't have a good hypothesis of why he would ever read my my little book that I sent him. <laughs> so what, what did you talk about? Can you divulge? Um. Well, I mean, he he was adamant that I figure out how to get it made into a movie. Um, and I was like, wow, I never really thought about that before. Um, I had been researching what I was during the writing process. Um, I wanted to tell a good story. I knew that much, but, and that led me to doing research actually on, uh, like screenplay writing and like, how do you 
craft together a story with like characters that arc and, you know, high points and low points and emotion. Like, how do you bring that into a story? And uh, but I never really considered making a movie out of it. It was just more like, let me just steal some stuff from Hollywood that I can use to kind of craft my own little story. And um, yeah, he, he basically was like, you know, you should figure out how to get this made into a movie. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. And they even had some specific like character uh, <laughs> ideas. Yeah, and some like, criticisms. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Like, you know, everybody's a critic, right? So <laughs> it was but I was like, oh, yes, sir. I just didn't want to say anything stupid and make him hang up on me. Uh, so I just was writing everything down that I, that he was saying. And, oh, good point, Charlie. Yep. What do you think about this? You know, I tried to ask him good questions. So um, speaking of that, so Wall Street Journal, uh, Jason Zweig, who writes the Intelligent Investor uh, column, and uh, he's written the introduction to the Intelligent Investor mm-hmm. and sort of legendary Wall Street Journal columnist who's had a lot of the uh, value investing events around the place. He picked up on the story and he got in contact too. That's right. He, he gave me a call. Um, well, actually I, I had him on five good questions, uh, when he has his book came out. And so we'd kind of stayed in touch and he, um, <clears throat> I knew that he would appreciate this Charlie story. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't like telling this story publicly at this point. Cause I just wasn't, uh, I don't know, something felt a little bit weird about it to me. Like almost like if the, the pretty girl at school <clears throat> gave her your phone number and then, or gave you her phone number. And then you don't go around telling everybody about that. Cause maybe she's like, why is he talking about that? Um, so I wasn't, I was telling just friends and, you know, people who I knew would appreciate the story. Uh, and then a couple, you know, like weeks later, Jason called me and said, Hey, I think there's enough here for me to do a story on it. And I, I didn't even know what he was talking about at first. Like, you know, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> like, yeah, you're Charlie story. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, how, how can I help? You know, I'll ask, and he asked me a bunch of questions and background and he had, um, he'd apparently called Charlie to kind of verify everything and make sure I wasn't full of baloney, um, <laughs> which could have been true, but, uh, yeah, so he did a write up on it. Um, talked about the book a little bit. Um, and mostly it was about Charlie and how amazing it is that this guy who's 95 years old still has time to like reach out and make somebody's day. Um, yeah. and that, that was, it's pretty special and, and he was completely right. It's a, it's a, it's a cool book. It's an unusual kind of approach to, it's a, it's a dry subject, capital allocation. And you stuck it right there in the title, which is impressive because you're <laughs> yeah. going to scare a lot of people away with that rebel allocator. Rebel's great. Allocator, scary. So the way that you've sort of, um, taken what's a pretty complicated, dry subject and made it a little bit more interesting is to write it in this narrative style where you've got characters and they interact. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the story and then we'll, we'll dive into the, the lessons from the capital allocation? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I started writing this book and, and you know this firsthand because, you know, you've been a really good friend on this project, um, especially in helping me to figure out what the hell I'm doing. And, um, you know, I've, I've probably sent you like 10 different book proposals of, of, things that didn't end up being this book. Uh, and it's been all over the place. And that's like, you, at one point you were probably like, what the hell is this guy even doing? Like he's all over the place. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, but, glad, I'm glad you got it all the way to the end. It's a, it's a huge effort to get it, to get it done. Yeah, for sure. Um, so anyway, uh, the long story short is the book originally started out as a typical nonfiction. Um, you know, I noticed that 
I would see a lot of being an investor, I would see a lot of capital allocation decisions. And that was a lot of what I spend my time doing is assessing management. Like, how are they doing? Like, if I was put in their position, would I have made the same moves? Um, And when I say capital allocation, uh, I don't just mean like dividends or buybacks or because that's kind of how it gets lumped a little bit. Um, I mean, everything from paper clips on up to to buybacks like it's it really is. What does this business spend its money on? Um, so anyway, I, I started out working on trying to solve this problem of seeing a lot of bad decisions made by people who I knew were were otherwise very intelligent. And I figured, you know, when, when I went to business school, I didn't really get sort of a a holistic uh, explanation for a practitioner of how do we do capital allocation. You get little bits and pieces of it all over the place, but no one really put it all together into a big pile for it and like, you know, made it so that you could process the whole thing and then make better decisions. Um, so anyway, I, uh, I had this nonfiction book in my mind and um, I had a book proposal, had a couple book offers, but something about it just didn't feel right. It, like you said, I mean, it's a, it's boring potentially very boring subject. Um, and also around that time, I felt like I was just getting a lot of little nudges from the universe that you you have to tell a story if you want it to have any chance of a lasting impact. And, um, I actually lost a close friend who was my age, um, around that same time. Uh, and it made me reevaluate, like really for me, it was sort of a, like, you know, mortality gut check of, if this book came out and I was to die six months from now, like the book, the nonfiction book, no one would care. Like it would have been over and done with. But if I could tell a story, there's a chance that it would be much more interesting and actually last and and be a better uh, better example of good work for my – I have two sons who are you know 10 and 7 years old. And I, I thought I can't – that can't be my legacy is like this – this dry, boring book that would like, they would never want to read. Uh, no one would want to read it unless someone forced them to read it. So anyway, all these things push me towards telling a story. And that's when I basically threw everything I had been working on in the dumpster and started over from scratch, um, trying to tell this story. Um, and it's basically a coming of age story of this college grad who, uh, through a little bit of luck meets a Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger type character, Um, who teaches him through a bunch of interactions, good cap allocation all the way down from basically like microeconomics up through, you know, if you were running a fortune 100 company. Um, so that was what I tried to accomplish. Um, and all along, hopefully applying a little bit of a, a veneer of, um, appreciating how capitalism makes our lives better and how capital allocators are the kind of the grease in the capitalist system that that make all of our uh, wants and needs get met by capitalism. Um, so, you know, it's it was it's kind of a crazy and like it sounds like very uh, chaotic to try to do all these things with one book. But uh, I don't know. That's just kind of where I ended up. And I just kept pushing through. So <laughs> well, it works really well. And that's it, probably why why Charlie reached out. Um, the, I, th- I think one of the problems with capital allocation is that I think value investors are really the only ones who think about it because anybody else who's come from uh, business school who's learned efficient markets that's not really a it's not a, it's not something that's ever considered uh, it's not sensible to that framework it's a it's only value investors who think about this thing's making some excess returns what are they going to do with those excess returns is it going to is it going to grow the business is it 
Should yeah. we even grow the business at all? So you, you sort of deal with some of those questions in the book. Do you see anybody um, out there today who you think is doing a very good job with, with capital allocation and, and why do you think they're doing such a good job? Oh, no, there's there's uh, scores of good CEOs. And, and really, actually, I think the CEOs probably get too much credit. Um, based on my experience of um, serving on a board for a, a private uh, energy consulting company and 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 a little getting a little bit more behind the scenes look at some corporations uh, through interactions. I think that the the CEOs it's sort of like being the president of the U.S. Like you get the blame for you know all the economy any you know anything that's happening and it's you don't deserve all of it. Like you inherit a lot of things. Um, there's a lot of inertia to everything that uh, you have to kind of work through. Um, so I think the CEOs get. They get too much credit when it's bad, or I mean good, and they get too much blame when it's bad. Um, but having said all that, yeah, there's there's so many great uh, cap allocators out there. Um, you know, obviously, Buffett and and Munger are the gold standard at Berkshire. Um, but you have you have so many really smart people who are doing this right now. Um, it's almost not even like worth mentioning them by name. There's so many, but the uh, what what is very interesting about them. And I think is really well highlighted in in William Thorndike's book, The Outsiders, is that all of these people had are willing to think for themselves um, and and go against the crowd potentially, and that's where one of my goals of my book was to potentially inspire people who read it to be have the confidence to make the decision for themselves. Um, I would love if someone read this book and decided, you know what, I can figure this out. And none of it is like rocket science, right? I mean, it's all, there's no higher math required. Um, it's all just being willing to sort of stand on your own intellectual two feet and figure out if, if like what I'm doing makes sense logically. Um, and you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult for some people to do that because it does take an emotional toll, um, for sure. I mean, everybody's who's anybody who's done investing, um, really in anything, especially if they've gone a little bit contrarian knows how painful that can be. Right. There's a, absolutely that there's a lot of, um, discussion about buybacks in the media at the moment. And it's funny, yeah. it's sort of, it breaks along two lines. And I, I think that they're both kind of odd lines. One of them is, um, this idea that, buybacks and dividends are somehow hurting workers in the business. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a political one that I probably don't want to touch. But the, the other one is that um, all buybacks are bad from an investment standpoint because uh, – and, and I, I have some sympathy for this view just because in the aggregate, the bulk of buybacks seem to happen at the very peak of the market. Mm -hmm. And then when the market draws down and the equity gets a lot cheaper and you think this would be a really good time to do a lot of buybacks, that's when the buybacks Nothing sort of happens. tend to dry up. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think that's um, if we look at the sort of the the base rate of buybacks, um, they are done in inopportune times, um, and they're done with in a herd like mentality. Um, and, and you know, part of that is a little bit understandable, given that you know theoretically a bull market, uh, everyone's feeling good about the economy. Everyone is kind of drawing straight lines up and to the right uh, for their business, for their stock price, right? So when that looks like like all things are – all systems go, like, okay, maybe I should buy back right now because it's cheap compared to what it's going to be in five years because look how it's gone up for the last five years, right? Well, 
reversion to the mean is is a very difficult thing to to avoid. Uh, although we seem to be doing a hell of a job right now, <laughs> uh, but. But I think, you know, it's it's kind of hard to blame them a little bit in some instances. Um, you know, in my book, I I tried to give a couple of outs for that for a CEO um, making that decision on buybacks. Uh, first of all, uh, one of the things that I, I I kind of borrowed from Ben Graham, actually, was thinking more about your partners as or your your shareholders as business partners and not so much as um you know, this group that you kind of have to try to keep happy and like throw a little dividend at them to keep them, you know, the the natives from getting restless. Um, So one of the things that I, I recommended through, through the character was that at a minimum, a company should be willing to do buybacks at one times price to book if it ever gets down there. Um, And the point being for that is that if, if you have a partner or a shareholder who needs liquidity, I think you're doing them a good service by providing them at least accounting value for the company. Um, you know, granted, like if everybody showed up and wanted to sell at one time, maybe we couldn't meet, you know, price to book, um, F1 at that point, like maybe it would be drowned and like we wouldn't have the cash to do it. But if someone, you don't know their, their financial situation and if you treat them like a partner and you want to take care of them, you should at least give them like book value for their comp- their company, right? Um, I think that's a very noble thing that capitalism can do. Um, now, let's say that you're a CEO and you don't know what your company is worth, which, uh, first of all, a little bit of like shame on you because if anybody knows what a company is worth, it should be the CEO. Um, however, let's say you don't know. Um, one option is to just dollar cost average, um, basically buy back no matter what. Um, w- sometimes you're gonna be wrong when the price is too high, and you're going to hurt your remaining shareholders by buying back at too expensive price, but you're going to benefit your departing shareholders. Other times the price may be low and you'll benefit the remaining shareholders and hurt the outgoing shareholders. But I don't think that, uh, I think the CEO should think about both remaining incoming outgoing shareholders as business partners as much as possible and uh, try to treat everyone fairly um, and a little bit more of a, holistic kind of stakeholder view of it and not so much how do I take advantage when you know my stock price is ultra low and just plow into buybacks uh, you know I, I understand as an investor who's going to be holding on to that uh, through the buyback like I love that but at the same time that's that you are taking advantage of one of the partners in that situation um, and I think that shouldn't be lost um, so you're you, you are an, you're an investor you're a you're a value investor and you run a firm in, uh, in Sacramento and Folsom, mm-hmm. um, firms called Farnham street investments. What's the, uh, what's the derivation of the name? Where does that come from? Well, I was sitting in 2009 in Omaha, um, trying to launch a fund and come up with a name for it. And I didn't want it to be like Taylor capital management or, you know, I don't know. That just seemed kind of grandiose to me. So, uh, I'm sitting there and I see Farnham Street as the address, you know, like one of the street signs. And I knew that that both Berkshire Hathaway's headquarters and Warren Buffett's house are on Farnham Street. Like they're on the same street. Uh, and they're like, I don't know, like three miles apart or something. So uh, it just clicked for me. Like, what about Farnham Street as a name? And that that's how it happened. Um, and then, of course, 
the Farnham Street blog came along a little bit after that. And uh, you know, credit to Shane, like he's he's done a hell of a lot more with the name than I have. Uh, <laughs> it's good marketing for you too. Well, we do get pretty regular calls like, hey, uh, is Shane there? Oh, you're looking for the Farnham Street blog? This is uh, Farnham Street. This is the wrong Varnum Street. I'm sorry. Uh, I know it's disappointing for you, but <laughs> Shane doesn't work here. So what, what's your investment strategy there? It's value investing, but I always say value investing is a very broad church. You've got the franchise sure. guys at one end and the very deep value, special situations, lots of different ways that that philosophy can be expressed. So what, what do you guys do? Well, basically, I'm looking for things that I can understand that seems like I'm getting a good deal. Um, and I, I, I don't like to pigeonhole myself into one specific kind of box or flavor of value. So sometimes I'm buying cheap assets, um, you know, on a low price to book. Sometimes I'm buying cheap cash flow or earnings or, and, you know, an EV to EBIT type of uh, thing. And it's all stuff that's cheap now, right? Um, and I'm looking for reversion to the mean there. Sometimes I'm, I can see something that makes sense to me in two to three years. I can kind of get an idea of what it might be worth and it seems cheap and I, I have a uh, a pretty good idea that it might work out okay. And then that, you know, that's a potential investment. Um, and sometimes it's like actually just finding really good capital allocators and, and trusting that they're going to make the right decision over the next 15 or 20 years and basically sort of outsourcing the investment to them um, and letting them manage the capital through the conduit of a business instead of in, in my, you know, in my fund, for instance. Um, and therefore, your return over time looks more like their internal return rather Correct. than sort of a, what your the, the price you pay becomes less relevant as you as you get out to those sort of time frames. Yeah, um, although I'm still a value guy and I have a hell of a hard time pulling the trigger on some of these. I know that I'm dumb for not just buying it uh, and and getting my fifteen percent compounding that I know intrinsic value is going to be over twenty years. Uh, but I just like I still have a really difficult time paying up sometimes for that cap allocation skill, even though I know it's like one of the things that moves the needle the most over a long period of time. And I absolutely love it as a strategy for the the anti fragility of it. Um, you know, when rough times come along, these these men and women are making moves to make their businesses more valuable and like they're taking advantage of opportunities then um, and they get up every day working hard and hungry to make my investment worth more. Um, so it's, it is tough for me sometimes to, to pull the trigger on. And I'm always, I'm more like, all right, I'm going to wait and I can't wait for this to get cheap for some stupid reason. And then I'm going to load up on it or I'm going to nibble. And as it gets a little cheaper, I'll keep buying a little bit more. Um, but you know, it's funny as I talk to, uh, you know, I've been going to the Berkshire Hathaway to meetings now, now 11 or 12 years in a row. And I, uh, I've kind of fallen in with this crowd of guys who are like the OGs of the Berkshire meeting. One guy was at the very first one and he was, it was at a, some like little diner and it was like him and seven other people sitting there with Buffett. And, uh, he, so I, you know, I've picked his brain over the years a lot and I asked him like, God, what was it like holding Berkshire from like 1967 or something when he bought? And he says, you know what? Everybody who's that early has the same story. We all didn't buy enough and we all sold too soon. Uh, and he's like talking about how his, his call, his, uh, daughter's graduation or, or a college tuition was the most expensive thing that he's ever, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like a $12 million 
uh, education in the opportunity cost lost of having to sell his Berkshire in like 1985 or whatever to pay for his his daughter's college. So, have you ever asked like, did they know at the time? Could they tell that Buffett they, was extraordinary at the time? Yeah, they knew that he was special at that point. It was pretty obvious. Um, so, but yeah, everybody, nobody bought enough, and everybody sold too soon. <laughs> So in your firm, when you invest, are you investing domestically? Are you investing internationally? You go anywhere? Yeah, we're, we go anywhere. Um, we, we have two products, if you will. Um, one is the fund, which is you know a, a copy of the Buffett partnership with a, the same uh, pay for performance setup that he has or he had in the 50s and 60s. Um, the other thing that we have is a and, and the fund is really like a best ideas. It's pretty highly concentrated. Um, and it's, what, what's it's, concentrated? What's what's your definition of concentrated? Um, I mean, there's probably the highest position in there right now is about twenty five percent at inception, or is that that's that you run that's run a little bit? Uh, that's been added to, and it keeps adding as it goes down. So, <laughs> the actual capital deployed is probably even higher than that. Right. Um, but yeah, so we that is a that one is a little bit obviously more aggressive. Um, our other our other product, if you will, is doing separately managed accounts. And those are a lot more retirement accounts. And those are also a lot more of people's kind of entire net worth. And that is, a uh, we manage a little bit more conservatively. Um, and, and what ends up happening is the fund gets um, individual stock picks for the most part, whereas the, the SMAs get uh, more kind of an ETF version of that, a little more diversification. So for instance, um, 2011, Fukushima happens, and Japan goes on crazy sale. Um, just ridiculous. It's like hard to imagine how cheap it was. Um, so the, in the fund, we're buying individual Japanese securities for 25 cents on the dollar. Um, stuff that's profitable, pays dividends, but you're getting like crazy price to book value. Um, bought a bunch of those, and now I think our dividend yield on that little basket, because we've just held onto them, whole time is like, I don't know, it's like 50 or 60% of our purchase price, right? Because it's just the, the, the businesses have improved and they're paying more dividends now. And our price was so stupid low. Um, you just hold on to it and just keep cashing checks. Um, so, so we do, so then the fund, you know, it's individual securities like that in the, the, the SMAs, that same idea got expressed through a Japanese small cap uh, ETF, um, you know, not quite as cheap on a when you look through at all the companies within it, but still pretty damn cheap. Um, so it's it's a little bit like sort of like rifle versus a shotgun um, right. approach between those two, and a little bit of diversification helps. It tamps down a little bit of the volatility, which is probably a good thing for the average investor to just keep them engaged um, and not like freaking out, uh, <laughs> which can happen if some of the swings in the fund are there. Are, they're wild, so you're. It's good and bad, right? It's it's the lumpy fifteen percent versus the smoother twelve right. sort of argument. The famous Buffett line. Yeah. You prefer the lumpy fifteen to the smooth twelve. I would too, but I don't know if investors do. Honestly, I think the lumpy fifteen may actually throw them off to the point where they don't benefit from from your service. Right. Um, and so, I feel like sometimes giving them a smoother, lower number potentially. And I, like I don't do anything special. I'm we're still like crazy volatile compared to the average probably. Uh, manager, uh, just because of the, sh the stuff that we buy. But, but I do think that as far as a user experience goes for your investor, 
you know, maybe absolute killing it returns that are that are super volatile are you're not going to bring them with you on the the ride, right? They're going to get off the roller coaster before it's over and they they get to the finish line and that's you've not really done anyone any favors at that point. So how did you discover value investing? How did you sort of learn and evolve and how, what was that what was that path like? Well, I, you know, a lot of people don't know, but I started out actually, I, I ran the power grid for the state of California for a long time, um, basically like an electrical engineer. Uh, and I, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, but I, and this is a job that I got right out of college and I, uh, I decided to go back and get my MBA, um, just to keep my options open if I wanted to go into management at the, at the energy company. And <clears throat> my first year there at, at uh, UC Davis, their MBA program, I won this lottery to go back and have lunch with Warren Buffett. Um, and, you know, I go back and obviously he's amazing and like knocks my socks off. And I come back and I'm trying to learn everything I can about him at that point, often to the little bit of the detriment of my other school reading, because, <laughs> you know, something had to give at that point. Uh, and it was ended up being like, you know, my boring corporate finance books and stuff. But um, anyway, I, you know, reading about Buffett for me, it made perfect sense. It was just like it was like the inoculation thing that he's talked about where. Of course, like why would you do this any other way? Um, and and I realized that I'd been a value investor my whole life. Actually, I had, I was always looking on Craigslist for deals of like trying to buy something and maybe sell it for more later. Uh, you know, arbitraging stuff. Um, I had my probably my favorite. You know, I was always a bargain shopper. I hated paying retail for anything. Uh, probably my best story of that is that uh, it was probably like it was like two thousand six or seven, I think. And uh, my wife wanted a Prius. And they were like pretty expensive at that time, uh, relatively to other cars. And um, like, you just couldn't find them hardly for for a deal. And I was like, oh man, what am I gonna do about this? I hate paying, I'm not gonna go down and buy a new one. Well, so I'm cruising around on Craigslist and I find a Prius for about half the price of what the other ones are going, but it has a salvage title, uh, which means it's been in an accident. Uh, and you know, it's, it's a very strong parallel actually to kind of value investing in that a lot of these companies that you find, like they've had an accident, but right. are they, are they still drivable? Right. Um, so I bought that car, uh, after getting it checked out, which is like doing your due diligence, uh, on the company, bring it into a mechanic and they, they give it an all clear. And, uh, I think I paid like $12,000 for it. And like those, those exact like specs for a car that was selling for probably 25,000 at that time. Um, so uh, you know, I'm happy to say that we still have that car in the family. Uh, it's it's still driving, and it's you know been what I don't know 12 years of driving this thing now. And my amortization on this, as far as like you know miles driven or even years driven for the cost, like I don't know, I'm down to like $600 a year or something for for this car. Um, and that's that's just kind of how I've always tried to live my life, uh, looking for bargains. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm willing to go on Craigslist and find a car that's salvage title, why would I not want a business that was also on sale for the same reason? Um, and maybe the same potential outcome. So that's it. it like I said, it just, it just clicked for me right away. It's funny. I, I, I agree. I, I've had the same experience and it's in, th in many different things. And one of them is the buybacks. Yeah. Cause Buffett says, work out the intrinsic value of the company do a buyback at a discount to the intrinsic value. Don't do it at a premium to the intrinsic value. And that just makes so much sense to me. You're concentrating the intrinsic value, increasing it in the existing shares when you do it at a discount and um, diluting it in the 
remaining shareholders when you do it at a premium. And so mm-hmm. I just have trouble thinking about it in any other way. But if you, that's, that's, not, that's not a lot of people think about it in those terms. I'm sure most of the people who watch this who are value investors say, well, of course, how else would you think about it? But, but that's, not the most, that's not the common approach yeah. to it. And I think you see those two expressions of it, those two arguments in the media right now about that. Well, you know what's funny is I think that um, you know a lot of the CEOs that I've come across who are good cap allocators, they've actually just found it on their own through kind of logical trial and error, um, you know, empirical study more so than they don't like they wouldn't even describe themselves as value investors. Like that doesn't even mean anything to them. Um, they just know well, you know, when my stock is cheap and I know it's cheap right now because I understand this business. I, I do buybacks, and when it's not, I, I don't do them, um, or or maybe even think about acquiring at that point because I have a, a pretty sound or strong currency, if you will. Uh, so all this stuff is so intuitive to somebody who's logical that it's to just even call it value investing is almost like this. Like I think Charlie said before, that it's almost redundant to say value investing because if you're not getting a value, then why the hell would you be doing it to begin with, right? So right. Well, I think a lot of there are. Again, I think it's just if you're in this, if you're in the value world a lot, you forget that a lot of people are approaching it in a different way, which is just, I'm going to buy it because I think it's going to go up. Yeah. It's for gone sure. up a lot. It's going to go up a lot more. I like Fang because they've gone up a lot. Yeah. No, that's, uh, you know, what's funny about that is I, I've reflected a little bit. So I, we started um, our fund in 2010 and a couple years before that, I actually I interned at another smaller value shop uh, that my my actual my business partner now had started by himself. And you know, when I think about when I found Buffett and when I got into all this stuff, value had had just a crazy run from say 2000 to 2008, uh, just absolutely killed it. And in a lot of ways. I should have probably been expecting reversion to the mean in value as a as a strategy um, because it's just it you know it can't work all the time right otherwise then it would everyone would do it and it would stop working but I was a basically I was like a value momo guy who who found this and saw the, all this confirmation bias of how great this is duh why can't I do this like everybody can anybody can do this right it works well then it just completely stops working, right? And uh, it it took me ten years post uh, getting into it to realize how ignorant I was going into it. <laughs> you know, just what a dummy. Well, it's very hard, isn't it? You're you're you sort of you're captive a little bit to the time that you start thinking about these things. If you if you looked at it in two thousand, you you might not have done you might not have gone into it because even Buffett was getting the the, the magazine covers saying he's lost yeah. it. Uh-huh. And um, and then for a period of early two thousands through to two thousand and eight nine, um, just being long undervalued stocks in not not long short at all, just long undervalued stocks, you sort of outperformed the market, but you went up where the market was falling from two thousand to two thousand two, which yeah, is that's, unusual. That's where you that's that's where reputations are are made, right? I mean, when you're up, when the world is down. It doesn't get any better than that, right? And 2010 is a very tough time to launch because it's basically been, that's about the start date of value not really doing much. And with 2019, nine years later, it's funny. There's a, I, I get a lot of questions like, do you think this stuff's going to, does this stuff work? <laughs> yeah. 
No, and it is. I mean, it's it's a fair question. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm way too much of a true believer to to think it's going to stop working. Um, maybe even to my own detriment, uh, <laughs> for sure. I'm right there I, with you. Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> I know we we confirm our our biases together. Right. right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I honestly, I feel fortunate that, you know, when I see some of the other value managers who I really respect and I know are smart people and to see the clobbering that they've had over the last couple of years, especially not just like underperformance in a ripping market, but like going down hard when everyone else is going up uh, and huge, you know, AUM outflows. I, I you know, I, I think to myself, like, by the grace of God, there go I. Um, and, and I feel lucky that, you know, we've we've kept it pretty conservative with a lot of cash over the last too many years uh, for a raging bull market. But but at least that's like dampened any of the really heavy, like downward swings and things for us. Um, and so, we yeah, we've lost ground on a relative basis as far as, uh, you know, the market leaving us behind. Actually, more accurately, like catching up with us like we were we were doing better than the market for quite a while and then it caught up with us and passed us in the last couple of years uh, but but yeah to have if i had been fully long to the gills this whole time we would have been really hurting and who knows what um so i just feel lucky that we've kind of had the foot off the pedal during this this time where things feel treacherous for for a value investor it's very hard there are lots of big names einhorn had has had a series of disastrous years. And then last year, I think he had a 25% down quarter. Q3 might have been 25% down. Ackman's in the same boat. And these are guys who are billionaires who started investing in the early 2000s or, or late 1990s, which is, in retrospect, a pretty good time to launch, but probably didn't feel like a good time for value at the time. Yeah. So there's a lot of big names who've been really hurt. You see a lot of big shops shutting down. I, yeah, it feels like a good time to launch, but uh, I know. <laughs> it's felt that way for about five years. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, we've um, we've been trying to basically turn money away as much as we can. Um, with like the fund has been closed for a couple of years. Our our uh, I have not been too eager to take anyone's money because I don't feel like I have any good ideas right now. For the most part, um, I've got a few things that I think are interesting, but not enough to fill up a whole portfolio and feel like we're like really doing a good service for someone. Uh, in fact, even like we we stopped charging on what we call excess cash in someone's in the 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 retirement accounts just to try to lengthen everyone's patience, which is kind of a way of basically turning money away uh, for a while. <laughs> I mean, it's not not complete. It hasn't left the account yet, but it's it's left the uh, revenue source <laughs> for us. So, do, do you have why why has value had such a a, a rough time? Do you think? Uh, you know, I think it's a, a confluence of factors. I don't know, honestly, like I, if I had to assign, like how much do I understand or not understand? Like I may be in like 50% understanding. I think a big part of it has been the indexation, um, and a just absolute orphaning of some stocks that just get no, no one is paying attention to them now. And they've just been just completely sold off, um, in, in crazy ways. Like, for instance, one one company that we own, um, it was clear as day that they were going to do a dual craft structure. And it, I mean, it had been telegraphed for months on end. It was like no surprise when the vote happened and, it, and they voted for a dual class structure and went to that. And 
the next day, all the indexes just sold it off because they had some mandate, like we're, we're not gonna hold dual class structure in this, this uh, index product. And the thing's down you know, 50% overnight, even though absolutely nothing has changed about the intrinsic value of the company um, and the ability of the company to make money. I mean, it's abs- and the, there was already a controlling shareholder uh, at that point. So it wasn't like this dual class structure changed anything, even corporate governance wise, hardly. Um, so it, silly things like that, I think are happening. And there, I think there's a bifurcation in the market right now where the, uh, the indexes are buying at any price. Uh, when I say index, I should say like, you know, the basically like, uh, the cap, you know, the, van- the cap weighted indexes or the, yeah, the, yeah. the, the ETF. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is, whether it's a mutual fund or an ETF is buying whatever price it is and buying more of the biggest and most expensive um, and creating its own momentum. Um, And, you know, I don't know how long that goes on. Uh, And the other thing, too, I think that's really has has hurt has been the. uh, I, I think that a lot of the cheap. Uh, the, the really, really cheap stuff has like, let's say the cheapest 10% of the market has, is not gotten that cheap. Even with this bifurcation, it still has only fallen to like kind of a little bit cheap on any historical basis. Um, so, you know, one thing we've talked about before I know is this idea of dispersion. Um, and so, you know, you have the average of, of how expensive the market is, and then you have sort of this bell curve around it of, you know, most expensive and cheapest and how wide is the bell curve when we're looking at it. So let's say that the average stock or median, uh, whichever one you kind of want to use is at, I don't know, today, maybe, I don't know, 25, let's say times earnings. Um, but that cheapest 10% out on the tail is down at, I don't know, maybe like 12 or so. Whereas in 2099, 2000, 2001, you had a very, very expensive average at like, say, 35 times earnings. But the cheapest part was at, I don't know, seven or eight times earnings. And you had because it was this this story of brick and mortar versus new economy. And so everyone sold off the brick and mortar stuff and you could get some great assets great businesses for super cheap at that time. And you had a very wide dispersion between cheap and average and cheap and expensive. Um, and today I think everything's kind of been squished together. I don't know exactly why that is. Like I, I put, I could put my tinfoil hat on and say that it's because of, you know, you know, the fed or, uh, you know, liquidity sloshing around or indexation or whatever. I mean, I think it's a confluence of all those factors, but, um, the fact is, is that the bell curve is not that spread out right now and it's relatively expensive and so there's like nowhere to hide basically i mean this is this is what i think monnier was talking about when he was talking about financial repression um like there's just basically nowhere to hide of anything that looks cheap that's uh james at uh gmo who 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 wrote that article in 2015 yeah and it's It's i don't think it's well beyond then yeah, no doubt. He was early on that. Well, he said you've got this very difficult choice uh, and or you, you sort of have to uh, survey the investment landscape and you have to make this decision if it's it's either going to remain this way for 20 or 30 years, in which case you should be 
fully well, invested and trying to take yeah. advantage of it as much as you possibly can. Or there's going to be this sort of calamitous crash halfway through it or at any time, in which case you don't want to be that long. And I don't think he resolved it. I don't think he said, I think GMO has sort of tended towards the the, the crash camp because of the way that they, they have managed the, their funds. But I don't think that, I don't think that Montiere, uh, Montier resolved it in that piece because I was, I was looking for the answer and I couldn't find yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Tell me what to do, James. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I mean, he's been, he's a, he's been a great um, investment philosopher and a value investment philosopher for a really long period of time. Now I followed him when he was at Dresdner Kleinwart uh-huh. and uh, then he moved on to somewhere else, which escapes me now. And I, and I think like a lot of people have read him over that period of time. And he's just, it's been a, it's been a rough run for value investment philosophers too. Yeah, no, I think um, it's, nothing has worked really. Whether it was, whether you were talking about uh, what you should be doing or you were actually doing it, um, everything looked stupid. Um, but that is a choice that in this type of situation, I think you're going to look stupid you're, and there's no getting around it. I, I, I've heard it called maybe like the, the bubble ultimatum. Um, you have to decide, do you want to look stupid before the bubble or do you want to, and during it, or do you want to look stupid after it? But there's no getting around it. Like you're going to look stupid at some point. So it's your choice. Um, I've chosen to look stupid before. Uh, <laughs> it's a very so far. long, it's a very long bubble. It's sort of, uh, the late 1990s was much deeper, but much shorter. And this has sort of been this shallow where you, you, you're, you're not quite keeping up, but it just, it, it goes on and on and on. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it will test, it's, it's testing the patients, but you know what? I mean, this probably should have been expected if you were a value investor in 2008, uh, potentially of that it was going to be hard sledding for a while. Um, just because it had been so popular and because yeah. it had attracted some, some assets. Yeah. And I think there's, um, I think in hindsight now, especially after seeing the amount of intervention that's happened in the marketplace with, uh, you know, all these QEs and everyone, all the banks printing and even, you know, the, the bank of Japan owning what 75% of their stock market now, um, you know, Swiss national bank buying billions of dollars worth of companies, uh, out of thin air, those kind of things, one of the things that you need as a value investor is for prices to come to you at some point. And, and if, if there's sort of a fed backstop or a, a central bank backstop there where the price never gets drifted, drifts down enough to you, then you sort of get crowded out at that point. And like, what are you supposed to do then, uh, when everything gets bought before your price level where you start to get interested in it? Um, and that, I think we've seen that over the last several years that there's just not nothing has even with crazy things, you know, that seem really bad happening in places. You know, I, I, I follow the news mostly to like sort of ambulance chase uh, looking for investment stuff. And so it's like nothing happens when you go you look at the stock price of something and it's like a, a real problem has happened um, or a, a natural disaster that you would think someone's going to be selling off for some reason. Right. Like we got to get out of this. It's been very rare that actually the market reflects any of the potential change in psychology that might have happened from some disaster that that seemed to happen more often in years past, at least in my observation. I don't know. What do you think about that? 
I think it's it's very hard. It's um, I mean, there's are the metrics wrong? So that's one question that I'm always asking myself: is the way that you're viewing these things wrong? And there are plenty of people who suggest that that's the case. So one of them, you know, price to book value has been historically kind of the academic gold standard for assessing yeah. value. Pharma and, French, um, right? And it's it's just had its worst worst decade ever. It's I think it's negative now for the decade. And then if you talk to like the O'Shaughnessy guys, have got some great research on negative equity impacting price to book value metrics. And they would say, well, it's because price to book value isn't that useful as a metric anymore. And there's some suggestion that it was never that useful as a metric. And But billions and billions of dollars have been invested on that basis. So um, that's always a concern. I think one of the other ones is that the interest rates you know, if you're if you're if you're doing a, a valuation, if you're doing a DCF, you need a discount rate. What's yeah. the appropriate discount rate? Do you take the discount rate that the market's offering you, which is close to zero? Yeah. And assume that that's the case over the ten or twenty or thirty year investment horizon for your investment, or do you assume some sort of mean reversion back to the historical mean, which is closer to six percent? If you build that into your model, that mean reversion versus a, a zero that's there for 20 or 30 years that's a wildly different valuation yeah six percent gets you a that, much lower especially valuation. The, the terminal value right. on a lot of this is like you can make it say whatever you want at that point <laughs> right and i think the final thing that i that uh that always concerns me is that you know the dot-com argument was that these dot-coms were just going to take over the world and nobody was going to be able to compete the bricks and mortar just couldn't compete and uh, it's not it's not necessarily called a dot com. It's not blamed on the dot coms, but it's online. Um, sort of has got to that point where it does seem to be. It doesn't mean revert. It just does seem to be taking over. So Amazon is an example of that. Although yeah. I think Buffett would say retail's always been really hard. You know, if you had yeah. a, if you had the, if you had the, um, uh, not supermarket. If you had the department store the department store beat out all of the smaller stores and then the department store needed to be located at the tram intersection. And so that's, that's always been the case. Bigger and better department stores have beaten out the less efficient and smaller department stores. And now we've got Amazon, which is the biggest department store yeah. in the world. Nobody's going to get bigger than Amazon. That's that's a, I'm going to be made to look silly in like 50 years' time. <laughs> Somebody's oh, bigger yeah. than that, Amazon. That won't age well, but okay. <laughs> So maybe it's a maybe it's uh, antitrust hasn't been enforced. I don't know. I've got I've got lots and lots of theories for why I'm underperforming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I think there's that's a really interesting question to answer right now. A couple things happening. Like, is well, really, it comes down to like, will earnings mean revert ever? Um, right now, like profit margins have been crazy high. Is this a new paradigm where the platform uh, company? is now because it's sort of a winner take all uh you know uh, dynamic is it wildly profitable and like you can't catch up and they just make all the money and earnings on tech stay super high uh, and you're an idiot for not recognizing this like sea change and having to go along with it uh, you know i'm a little sanguine about that uh as a as a thesis i'm not so sure that like everyone has thought that about everything um that like this is the new normal this is the new permanent like this these companies are always going to make money just buy it and hold it and forget about it you know i <laughs> i'm not sure about that um on any kind of very long term basis 
but I could be wrong for a hell of a long time on that. And it much like to a major detriment. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to see value guys even getting sucked into buying, you know, Amazon or Netflix, um, or anything that you look at it and like, gosh, there's so much of the value is predicated on, uh, first of all, them eventually stopping doing reinvestment and like just printing money at that point. Right. I mean, all these companies, like I'm not completely sure that Amazon is not just here to, uh, punish producers in favor of consumers permanently. Like Bezos, it just wants to keep running roughshod over all of these producers and, and providers for the sake of us, the consumer. Um, and I, I mean, that's kind of been what every pot, like really successful retail has done has been, whether you were JC Penney with a catalog, um, like that was running roughshod over the, the five and dime that was there. Um, whether you were Sears with a giant department store that was squeezing, uh, you know, manufacturers for better deals, like aggregating the purchasing power of all of these consumers that you have, um, or your Amazon and, and you're crushing all the, you know, brick and mortar. It's always for the benefit of the consumer. I don't know though that that necessarily that means that Amazon's going to make all the money ever. Like, like, are they going to be profitable at some point? And I think that's a big part of the the thesis. If you're trying to put a DCF on like what Amazon's worth in 20 years, there has to be this big pile of money at the end of that, and not have it be going into the next whatever thing that they're doing. Um, so, I, I don't know. I think that's those are really tough questions to answer. Um, and I, those go into my too hard pile, and so I don't have uh, an investment in e any of those kind of things because I just don't feel like I could wrap my mind around what that looks like even two, five years from now. I mean, it's really tough. I mean, I, I agree. that I think that, that's the, that has been the hardest question that I've encountered frequently, regularly, over and over again over the last nine or ten years, that you, you, you look at something that is being beaten by Amazon and is this sort of a temporary thing or is Amazon going to kill it? And if that happens enough, then maybe I should be looking at Amazon. So then I look at Amazon and try to value Amazon, and it's extremely difficult to do because they run it purposefully at a subnormal profitability, reinvesting in the business all the time. It's a fantastic business. I've, there's no question it's a very, very good business. I have no idea what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah, and it may just be a destroyer of worlds um, <laughs> and not, not necessarily for the benefit of the shareholder, but for the benefit of maybe humanity, I think Bezos would, would probably make that argument, maybe. <coughs> Excuse me. Just to go back to, um, so you talked about dispersion before, which is something we have discussed in the past, but, and that's basically the difference between an undervalued, the undervalued cohort and the overvalued cohort or value and glamour, as the academics like to call them. Yeah. So you, you saw something different in 2000 and, you, and 2007. You contrasted those two. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> 2007, um, kind of similar to today, was expensive by most valuation metrics, um, actually less expensive than today. Um, but the, the, the tightness was, was uh, higher in 2007 than, than 99, 2000. Um, and I don't know why exactly. Um, part of it was maybe the thesis just wasn't there of like, why should there be a call it 10% of the market that's super cheap. Like what, what would be the narrative that would drive that to for have everyone throw those away at any price and have everything else be expensive. Um, 
So, you know, I don't know why exactly it was like that, but the, the dispersion was much tighter in 2007. And what's been really interesting is to actually look at a lot of the value studies um, and how they've performed over these sort of different time periods and what I would call like opportunity sets um, of different sort of eras. So if you look at like, let's just take the magic formula as a as an example, something that pe- a lot of people are familiar with. Coming out of 99, 2000, absolutely crushed. Like, I mean, just putting up obscene numbers, insanity. Um, you get to 2007, 8, 9, 10, maybe even all the way up to today now. Um, I haven't seen the last like maybe year or so, but um, it did not crush during that time period. And my hypothesis was that perhaps that was because that cheapest 10%, that rubber band was not really pulled too far away to really get a super cheap stock opportunity set to be a buyer then. Um, so that, I mean, it's really hard to, to validate all that, like for sure. Um, as like, so, and the other problem is like, you know, how big do you want to call the universe? Like, you know, maybe if you had been looking more international, um, that would be, it completely changes the equation. But I do think there is something to be said for every opportunity set and just trying to evaluate like, all right, is this cheap? on a historical basis? Is it cheap compared to like, you know, value versus glamour? Um, what does this opportunity set look like and how, you know, how, how deep is it? How rich is it? Um, even sometimes the quality of the business might factor in a little bit in that like cheapness. Like for instance, that 99, 2000 cohort, you had a lot of very profitable businesses that were being thrown away for cheap. There may come a time where that cohort is not profitable and not, uh, not economically sound. And maybe this is like the things that you're talking about that are getting crushed by Amazon and really are zeros, right? I mean, on any kind of longer basis, like they could be zeros. And I know that, um, you know, you found in your studies that, that, that kind of doesn't matter that you still buy the cheapest and that actually the stuff that's most under, like as far as sort of money going out the door of the business to actually perform the best because there's sort of a catalyst, I think maybe there that like, man, things are really wrong here. Like we need either need to sell or fix it or something. Whereas if you're sort of profitable and cheap, you can sort of bounce along and uh, just kind of waste time and see if you can get to the next round. <laughs> is, well, I mean, is that, that's what you found, right? I think there's, so that, well, there's, two, there's two parts to it. I think roughly 50% of the cheap stocks are going to go down and they're going to get beaten up and 50% are going to work out. And I think that that's true of most stocks. There's just that they, it's hard to know which are going to work yeah. Um, because there's so many parts going on. They're, they're competing for business. And so it could be a competitor that starts hurting them. They might just be too expensive. Management can do the wrong thing. There's lots and lots of things that can go wrong. Um, so I just think if if you're looking at the entire universe of stocks and there's lots of stuff that can go wrong, for the expensive ones as well as the cheap ones, I'd just rather be in the cheap cohort because when the cheap cohort, when they get get it right and that was genuinely mispriced, you get such a good return out of that that... That that's why that that undervalued quintile decile portfolio, whatever. That's why it tends to work a little bit better. But that's just not been the case for a long period of time now. Yeah. What do you think about the the? There's been a couple of books lately that have talked about the intangibles in the economy, and basically that sort of accounting has not kind of kept up with economic reality. With so much, um, you know, when you capitalize all the, the software costs of a company, let's say, instead of amortizing them and putting on the balance sheet, you, you make the company look less profitable. 
you make the company uh, have less assets, basically, um, and they look more expensive potentially because of that. Um, have you have you thought about trying to do any adjustments to try to add back some some accounting value to a company to maybe still stay quant, but maybe make the adjustment to to account for how the world has changed with software eating the world? Well, I think uh, the O'Shaughnessy guys have done a good job with that stuff. Um, they, they have made lots and lots of adjustments to the balance sheet and to, um, but it, I, th- I think some of that, some of that stuff is hard to know. Is it, is it the correct thing to capitalize a website or some technology that's going to, or some, you know, some, uh, computer code that is going to be, uh, earning you money over an extended period of time. I don't really see why that should be treated any differently to a house that does require regular maintenance or a building that requires maintenance needs to be built, needs to be some investment. Capitalization might be the correct treatment. Treatment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's also the argument of, you know, uh, being conservative and and also that if they're spending it every year on it to keep this thing up and running, maybe it is really like maintenance kind of CapEx and should just be run through um, the income statement instead of put on the balance sheet. But I don't know, it's one of those ones that feels like, might be right but but also like maybe the market already recognizes that and so you know you're almost almost it's almost the same argument of oh well you shouldn't buy you shouldn't be buying russia right now because they have terrible corporate governance right or there's a lot of uh political uncertainty well yeah that's how you get to a a 5 pe um for for a basket of assets right that's why Uh, it's cheap that's why it's cheap Right. So if it, you could come up with a good reason to throw everything out. Um, and so maybe this same thing applies to, you know, backing back intangibles into the into your numbers. I don't know. Well, uh, it's a great question. And I will have to have you back to ask you sometime <laughs> in the future, because uh, that's the that's the full hour. Just before we go, um, the book is called The Rebel Allocator by Jake Taylor. It's available in Amazon. Uh, Print. Yeah. Kindle? It's a. Uh, yeah, Kindle and physical, and um, I'm working on getting an Audible version as well. And uh, lucky for you, I will not be the one reading it, so you won't have to put up with my voice. You'll get a, a real talented uh, voice actor to do it, so it'll be a much better product. And uh, this is the book that Charlie Munger loved so much he wanted to see it made into a movie, so I I, I read it and loved it. I think it's a great, um, it's a great unusual surprisingly kind of fresh format for what can be a really dry subject you and i both love capital allocation but it can be a dry subject but and I, I think you did it really well it's a fantastic book i recommend anybody go out there and, and read it yeah and you read early crappier versions too so it's it's probably even a little bit better than <laughs> than what you read <laughs> uh, jake taylor thanks very much for coming on the show thanks toby my pleasure